So the reading comes from Luke chapter 9 and beginning at verse 28, and it's on page 1039 of the Church Bibles. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's very good to be here with you on this lovely, both warm and damp evening. It's a beautiful combination. Um, it's very good to be here this evening um, talking to you about the transfiguration, which is what the first part of our passage um, was talking about. And in particular, we're going to be drilling down a little bit into what the transfiguration means. And naturally, that's the sort of thing that we could fill hours and hours um, of time with. Undecided yet as to whether we'll actually fill hours and hours. Let's find out. Um, if anyone's got anything they need to do tomorrow, then let me know. And otherwise, we'll, uh, we'll just keep going. Um, but yes, one of the great things about the transfiguration and about the Bible in general, but particularly what we see in the transfiguration, is it gives us essentially what amounts to a peek behind the curtain or behind the scenes as to what's really going on in Jesus' ministry. Now, I'm always a big fan of films and TV shows and seeing their behind-the-scenes things, seeing bloopers or, you know, things that happen behind the scenes, because that really gives you a glimpse as to what it's like to be on the set of that TV show. You get to see what the actors are like, what the environment is, what the filming process is, the kind of things that they do um, to make the things that happen on the TV show happen. And I think here we get a little bit of a glimpse, again, as to what is happening through Jesus and all that he is doing. 
and there are some threads that we're going to carry all the way through the passage. So I'd recommend if you don't have a copy of the passage in front of you, it might be worth grabbing it. There are some Bibles around the side, or feel free to look at your phone and keep track of how many hours we are through. This is hour zero of N, um, where N is to be cited. Um, as, you, uh, as you do that, let me pray for us, um, and then we'll get started. Look, we thank you for your presence among us. We thank you for the word that you have given us. And we pray this evening that as we look at your transfiguration and we understand more of what it has to say to us, would you be meeting each one of us where we are, helping us to hear what you have to say to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So the first thread we're going to be carrying throughout this passage is that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. And in particular, we see this in the figures of Moses and Elijah that we see on top of the mountain. This question of the law and the prophets would have been a really significant one for Jewish people at the time, particularly the disciples, but also the people that Jesus is preaching to. They would have wanted to know that this Jesus who's going around, is he a continuation of all this stuff that we've seen already in the law and in the prophets, or is he a completely new thing? And in fact, the answer is both. He is both a continuation and something radically different to what has come before. But in particular, there is this strong continuity between what happens in the Old Testament that the Jewish people would have been familiar with and what is happening in our passage today and throughout the Gospels in the ministry of Jesus. And throughout this passage, we'll see all sorts of allusions to the Old Testament, all sorts of links and connections between what's happening now and what's happened potentially thousands of years earlier. And one of these we see in the figures of Moses and Elijah that Jesus meets with. Both of these very significant figures from the Old Testament. Moses led the exodus of the Israelites out of the wilderness, through the desert, and almost into the promised land. Later they make it to the promised land. Moses doesn't quite make it there with them. While he's doing this, he receives the Ten Commandments from God, and he writes the first five books of the Old Testament, which are often known as the law. Elijah, on the other hand, was a very significant prophet living during the reign of King Ahab. He performed many miracles throughout his ministry, including raising the dead and demonstrating God's power in a contest with prophets of Baal. It feels a little bit like I'm about to introduce them, um, which I've just realized in my notes. Um, if you're expecting Moses and Elijah to come here, that would be impressive. Um, I haven't planned that. Um, but if that does happen, then by all means, feel free to stop listening to me and start listening to them. But in case that doesn't happen, uh, I will continue with uh, my notes. Because what we see here is we see Moses and Elijah as a significant figure from the law and from the prophets. And some theologians interpret this as Moses and Elijah passing on responsibility for the law and the prophets on to Jesus. In general, what we see with Jesus throughout his ministry is a very strong commitment to the Old Testament. In Matthew's Gospel, where he records the Sermon on the Mount, he writes these words. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And this was the way that Jesus saw his ministry. At one point he went into a temple, read a passage from Isaiah, and then said, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And throughout the Old Testament, we see all sorts of prophecies and predictions that come true in the person of Jesus. And one relevant one that I think would be worth looking at just now is one that I believe is fulfilled at this transfiguration, which we see in the book of Malachi, the very, very last prophecy in the Old Testament, which says this, 
Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And this is Malachi predicting 400 years before Jesus came what this great day of the Lord would look like. And in particular, you'll see their mention of the law of servant Moses to continue with, and also the coming of the prophet Elijah. When people were asking who John the Baptist was or who Jesus was, one of the answers that was often given was Elijah, precisely because of prophecies like this. But ultimately, I believe that the way that this is fulfilled is in this moment of the transfiguration when Elijah comes and meets with Jesus. And throughout this passage and throughout the Gospels in general, there are always these threads of Old Testament law and prophecy being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to not forget about the Old Testament and to remember to engage with it truly because by looking at the Old Testament, by spending time with it and understanding what it said and what people at the time would have understood from that, this really gives us deeper and stronger insights into the person of Jesus and into all the things that are happening. There are all sorts, as I mentioned, of opportunities to see connections between the Old Testament and this passage in particular, and we'll pick up on a few more of these as we go, but by no means will we have time to cover all of them, so there are absolutely more that we can look at and we can discover. But the second thread that I want to pick up passing through this passage is that Jesus himself is God. Now, if you're looking for the exact verse in this passage where it says Jesus is God, I'm not going to be able to show that to you. But I think that's okay. And the reason why I think it's all right is because it's important to understand what this passage is saying, again, in the context of the Old Testament. Because you can often make something very, very clear without saying it explicitly. And let me give you an example. Imagine you're watching a TV show, and there's a man who walks in. The man has a Romanian accent, he has pointed fangs, he's wearing a big cloak, he's fascinated with bats, has to be invited in before he's allowed in. He's very unsure about communion, because on the one hand there's a crucifix at the front and he doesn't like that. On the other hand, he had rumors of a cup of blood, which is particularly of interest to him. Now, you will probably have a picture in your head of what I am referring to, and in particular, if I asked you, for instance, the question, do we think this person likes garlic? You would probably have a pretty good idea of how he felt about garlic and all sorts of other things, even though at no point during that conversation did I ever say the word vampire. If none of you got the word vampire from that, then maybe we don't have a completely full cultural understanding of what we're on about here. But I expect for a lot of us that would have been where our minds went, and very deliberately so, because these words and these pictures were very deliberately chosen to present a picture of who this person was. And I think throughout the Bible we see a lot of very similar pictures about who the Messiah is, to the point where to someone who is as immersed in Jewish culture as we seemingly are in vampire culture, for someone who's immersed in that, the implications of some of the, some of the imagery and some of the things that we see in this passage would have as clearly said to them in, that, in their time that this is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it would have been to us today, making implications about other things. And one of the things we see where we get this implication of who Jesus is, is Jesus' visible appearance in the transfiguration. We see in our passage that Jesus is shining. His whole appearance is bright like lightning. Another, another gospel describes his clothes as being so bright, brighter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And we get this sense of a really bright 
light, and presence. And one of the things that this would have drawn to mind for a Jewish culture would have been a very similar experience that Moses has, again, particularly with the presence of Moses, not over here, um, but in the passage in chapter 34 of Exodus, where it says this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. What we see in this passage is immediately following Moses' encounter with God, his face is shining in a very similar way to the way that Jesus' face is shining in our passage. But Jesus is more than that. It's not just his face, it's his entire appearance. And we see here that in some way, Jesus' encounter with God here is much greater than Moses' encounter with God. Moses is seeing Jesus face to face, and so his face is shining, but it can be covered with a veil. Jesus' entire appearance and countenance, top to bottom, is filled with light and with the presence of God. There's a sense here that Moses is reflecting the glory of God, whereas Jesus is wearing the glory of God. It's the difference between reflection and the source itself. And then the next thing that happens is quite a terrifying thing. So I've got a very terrifying slide coming up, which I need you all to be mentally prepared for. But I think we're going to be all right, says so Zach. If you can go to the next slide, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to startle you with this horrifying, horrifying picture of a cloud. It's not particularly scary. And yet what happens in our passage is a cloud appears on top of a mountain, a perfectly normal event, and yet the disciples are afraid as they come into the cloud. And again, this is explained, at least in part, by understanding our Old Testament. Again, we have um, a verse from Exodus, of which there are several that I could have picked. But this talks about the cloud as being the presence of God. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout the Exodus, the Israelites by day were following a pillar of cloud that represented the presence of God. And again, in this passage here, we see a cloud representing the presence of God to the point where it's so thick and so potent that nobody could enter this tent of meeting while the cloud is there. And so the descending of this cloud, again, to the disciples who would have been, who would have understood all of their Old Testament history, would have understood the significance of what this cloud was. As they enter the cloud, there is a voice from God which declares, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the cloud clears and the presence of God has cleared out, what is left? Not Moses, not Elijah, just Jesus. There's nothing specifically in this passage that says directly that Jesus is God, but there are so many allusions in this passage alone, let alone across all of the Gospels, that to the hearers of the Gospels there, they would have been left in very little doubt as to what these Gospel writers were attempting to convey about the person of Jesus. We see this themselves in the writings of Peter and John later. John's Gospel, uh, in John 1:14, he says that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. And in the second of Peter's letters, he writes that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Both of them alluding, at least in part, to the experiences they've had with Jesus, and at least in part, with the experiences of the transfiguration 
and their opportunity to peek behind the curtain and see a bit more of who Jesus really is. And alongside that as well, they get the opportunity to see not just who Jesus is, but what Jesus is coming to do. And this is the final thread that we're going to carry through this passage, which is that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. Now, directly before our passage, verse 27 of Luke 9, it says this. Jesus is saying, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And there's a few possible ways of reading this passage. Some people, indeed, potentially even some of the early Christians, believed that this meant that some people would not taste death before Jesus came back again as his second coming. And that's certainly entirely possible. Some of the disciples may well have believed that. And as we all know from reading the Gospels, the disciples never got anything wrong. So I'm sure if that's what they thought, then there's no arguing with that. But it's interesting that this verse, or a verse very similar to this, appears in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. And in all three of these Gospels, the thing immediately after this verse is their account of the transfiguration. And I think certainly one interpretation of this verse and of what Jesus is alluding to here is not his second coming, but actually what is revealed to Peter and to James and John at the transfiguration. It is their opportunity there to see the kingdom of God. And this is characterized by all sorts of things. And again, when we get into hours seven and eight of this talk, I'm sure we'll get opportunities to drill down into that more. But one of the things that in particular I want to pick out um, from this is the image that we get here of Jesus' victory over death. Both Moses and Elijah that Jesus is talking to have their own rather unusual experiences with death. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies, but he is buried by God, and the passage tells us that nobody knows where he is buried. Elijah's death is even more unusual in that in two kings we see that Elijah is walking along one day with Elisha, and then he's picked up and carried off to heaven in a chariot of fire, presumably in slow motion. And their presence here on the mountain with Jesus is an indication of Jesus' ultimate victory over death. This indication that in the kingdom of heaven, God has victory over death. There is no room for death, and we see this in the presence of these two very significant figures continuing in their conversation with Jesus. And what is it that they're talking about? Now, one of the things that's incredibly annoying about this passage is that we hear that Peter is very sleepy. I wish he had been listening more because I think this would have been a really interesting conversation to hear more about. But because Peter was a bit dozy, all we really get is this verse um, that talks about Jesus' departure. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And this is a slightly odd wording. Previously in Luke, very, very shortly before our passage, Jesus had announced that he is going to Jerusalem and anticipates himself dying there. And later on in the passage, we see this again. But here we've got this slightly odd word, departure. And this seems like a very euphemistic word. But in fact, here is where one of the things that we get by drilling down into the Greek itself is. I'm not a particularly good Greek scholar, but the word for, for departure here that is used by Luke's account is in fact the word exodus. And I don't need to be a particularly good Greek scholar to be able to say something about what this word implies. We're talking here about Jesus' departure, but we're having an imagery here of the exodus. Again, 
With Moses there, this image would have been particularly potent and particularly clear. And through this conversation, we see this idea that Jesus' work on earth is to complete an exodus in the same way as Moses' exodus happened. But just as Jesus' experience with God in being clothed fully in brightness is much greater than that of Moses, so is Jesus' exodus so much greater than Moses. Through Moses, God delivered the Israelites out of human slavery. But the exodus of Jesus is delivering us from the slavery of death itself. Moses' exodus takes the Israelites out of Egypt. Jesus' exodus is bringing all of God's people, Israelites, Jews or Gentiles. And the destination is greater too. Moses is taking his people to the promised land. And although the promised land is a wonderful land, the Israelites, when they arrive in there, are still human and still get things wrong. Whereas when Jesus takes us to his kingdom of God, we're being taken to a kingdom where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. This is ultimately what Jesus is aiming to fulfill on the cross. And again, this is another unusual word. You wouldn't really use fulfillment to talk about your death unless your death, as Jesus' death is on the cross, is achieving something far greater than what would be visible from just people seeing it at the time. And so we get this, again, thread throughout this passage of the kingdom of God being brought in. And in the second half of our reading, we see, again, examples of that, with Jesus healing a man, a boy, who is possessed by by a demon or a spirit. And there is so much to be delved into in this passage that we really have only just scratched the surface of all that is there and all that we could dive into. But I think one of the things that's really important to recognize through this is that in all of these passages, particularly in this passage of the Transfiguration, but throughout the whole Bible, there is so much going on and so much to be understood and ingested and to be um, learned about Jesus and about who God is that none of us could ever hope to capture all of that in one lifetime. And in particular, the encouragement here, I think, is to allow ourselves to take these opportunities to peek behind the scenes at who Jesus really is, at who God really is, about who Jesus has come to be and what he has come to do. There is always so much more that we can learn. And as we read through the Gospels, as we spend time in God's Word, as we spend time in community together, there will always be so much more that we can come to see. So I'd like to encourage you this evening to take the opportunities to delve down more into God's word. There's so much more in this passage that we could have talked about um, that we haven't had the opportunity to go through this evening. And I'd encourage you to go into this passage and dig down more and find more of these things, ask more of these questions, use more and more of these opportunities to find out who Jesus is really for yourself. And if you've never done that before, I'd encourage you to start by just reading through the gospel. And if you've done that 100 times before, I'd still encourage you to read through a gospel again, because every time you do it, you will be surprised and amazed and delighted by the person of Jesus that you'll encounter there. So let me pray for us as we close. If the band would like to come up, uh, if everyone else would like to stand, and, uh, and we'll pray now. Father God, we thank you for your revelation of who you are. 
in the person of Jesus. We thank you for your work through thousands of years of history of the Old Testament, through the life and works of Jesus in the New Testament and in the 2,000 years since then. We thank you for all that you have been doing and we thank you for all that you are. We pray now for each one of us here. Would you help us to know who you are more deeply? And would you meet each one of us at our point in need? For those of us who feel lost, would you help us to meet Jesus, the good shepherd? For those of us who feel alone, would you help us to meet Jesus, the faithful friend? For those of us who feel afraid, would you help us to meet Jesus, the prince of peace? For those of us who feel overwhelmed, would you help us to meet Jesus, the conqueror? And for all of us here, would you help us to meet Jesus, our savior, where we are? Let's just take a minute to ask God to speak to each one of us and to show us more of who he is.